Well, hello and thank you for joining us. Today we have Sky Owen, um, who's in the Senior Associate at Family and Relationship Law Group, um, which is Lander and Rogers in Sydney. Um, Sky and I have been friends for many years and often have conversations about, um, you know, the settlement process, the divorce process and whatnot, um, given often I deal with uh, divorcees coming to me for financial advice after the fact of settlement, sometimes beforehand, and I've got to recommend they go see someone or seek advice. And you're you're often, you know, in the coalface dealing with that situation. And there's a lot of people that have a lot of questions around um, this conversation. I get a lot of people come to me and go, where do I start? And we don't get married to get divorced. So there is sort of no clear direction on how to go about this when you are, you know, your relationship employed in some way or, you know, you're at that crossroads and having to look down that um, how do we divide up our assets? How do we split this life that we've built together? Um, so I guess the first part is where do people start when they are looking at considering even separating or divorcing? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is that um, family law doesn't just affect people who are married. It also extends to people who are in de facto relationships. So it's important to know that if you're living with someone and you separate, then you also may need to also see a family lawyer. And I think from my experience, if you have got, are going through a separation, it's probably good to get advice from a lawyer who has experience in family law relatively early on, um, just so you know what your entitlements are and you can get a good feel for how um, to progress the matter as smoothly as possible because our goal as family lawyers is to try and keep people out of court. That's what we want to do because the family law system is so clogged at the moment. So I think if you're going through a separation in a marriage or in a de facto relationship, then getting some advice from a qualified family lawyer relatively early on is what I would recommend. Mm, good, good advice. So um, it, the concern people often have is the expense of going straight to a lawyer. Um, other, you know, and I, I think your advice is great because it's, it's just because you want to keep people out of the court system. So a lot of people have this concept, if I go see a lawyer, that's, that's the next step. So can you talk us about through um, what the process is when someone comes and seeks advice? Um, and, you know, is, is that when mediation kicks in or how does all that work when you're sort of beginning stages? Well, in financial matters, because as lawyers, as family lawyers, we deal with parenting as well, but I'll, I'll keep my um, comments to financial matters for the purpose of, of this discussion. If a client was going to come and see me in relation to a recent separation and they wanted to talk about financial matters, we the first step we would be saying is, is that we need to get full and frank financial disclosure to actually work out what there is to divide in a property settlement. So that would require um, our client who comes to see us getting together all their financial documents, as many as they have, including tax returns, bank statements, um, superannuation forms. Um, and then we would either advise them to ask their former partner for their former partner to provide those documents to them or we would communicate with their former partner directly and say we need to get those documents. That would be the first step. The second step, once we actually established what there is in terms of um, property, bank accounts, superannuation companies, um, trusts, those types of assets and liabilities, um, we would 
certainly as far as we can be proposing a mediation if all of those assets and liabilities, the values were agreed. So often there can be disputes about the value of certain properties. So for example, there might be a house and um, partner A says it's worth 200,000 and partner B says it's worth a million dollars. Um, and in those circumstances, um, you would either try and meet in the middle and come to an agreed value, or you would um, jointly instruct a value or to give you um, a value of that property. If of course the parties are wanting to keep the property and not sell it, because if you were selling it, the, the market would decide. So it's important that the values of all the assets and liabilities that are in the balance sheet, in my view, are agreed before you actually go to a mediation, because if there's a dispute, about the value of any of those assets or liabilities, it can make settlement discussions very difficult. So we would be helping guide um, our clients through that process of getting a settled balance sheet. And provided that all goes smoothly and both parties are cooperative in that process, then definitely we would be referring them to a mediator to try and resolve it on a final basis. Um, and mediation can occur with or without lawyers. So there are lots of mediators we can send clients to that don't necessarily require it to be a lawyer-assisted mediation. Often in um, property settlements are a little bit more complex. It might help to have a lawyer present, but um, we can often guide in the background, but we can also be actively involved in the mediation process. But definitely mediation is the way we would be progressing a matter as quickly as we can. Mm. I think I should mention just on that point, um, and I think it's important that I, I, I raise this, is in family law matters, um, it's not just property settlement. So um, people often forget that in terms of financial matters, there's a thing called spouse maintenance. So we often have clients that come to see us who may never have worked during the relationship, or they may have the full-time care of young kids and they can't work. And it's been the pattern throughout their relationship that their former partner supports the family financially. They've got quite a traditional family model where, you know, mum's at home with the kids and dad's at work. And then they separate and all of a sudden mum can't support herself any longer because she's got no income coming in. Um, her former partner's cut off the financial support. Um, and she can't meet her expenses. And in those circumstances, she may be entitled to what we call spouse maintenance. If she can establish a need to be supported and her former partner has a capacity to pay, then there may be a spouse maintenance. Um, um, she may be entitled to spouse maintenance. So separate to property settlement. So we would be giving advice about spouse maintenance and property settlement. They're, they're two different areas. So it's important that people are aware of that because often they're not. Yeah, and, and that's actually quite a scary thing for somebody who, say, is in a relationship that they're incredibly miserable in and they know that there's no end to that um, but having to leave, especially with young children. Um, and the fear is how am I going to survive? How can I get through this? Um, and, you know, then there's that element of potential control of having a partner that has looked after everything and then gone, no more that would actually hinder the process for someone to even leave um, and we talked before we started recording about um, financial abuse and with I've interviewed Amanda Kassler on the topic so I would like to talk a bit about that as well later but um, do you have you come across cases where it's taken a long time before the partner's actually gone I'm 
I've got to get out of this situation. I need to end the relationship. And often we'll have clients that come to see us even before separation saying, this is my situation. I'm really concerned about how I'm going to manage. What do you recommend as the best way for me to get out of this relationship um, but be able to survive financially um, in that transitional process? Um, so I think that um, it's important I should also throw into the mix there. I, I like to think of these as family law bubbles. Um, and I have to thank my um, colleague Tessa Kelman for this concept. Um, I can't claim it as my own because um, Tessa talks a lot about family law bubbles. And I think this is an important concept. So in one bubble, we've got property settlement, which is when we're looking at how we're going to divide what's in the pool. So the assets, the liabilities, the superannuation, the company, how that's going to be divided. In the second family law bubble, we have spouse maintenance. So how um, am I going to survive? Um, given that I haven't worked for such a long time and how am I going to survive? And that's talking about support of the spouse. In the third family law bubble, we have child support. And that's important because in Australia, both party, both parents have an obligation to financially support their children. Um, so you can have um, either a private child support agreement with your former partner where you agree to pay, um, he, he agrees to pay a certain amount or you agree to pay a certain amount and you both agree to contribute to um, other expenses such as school fees, health expenses, all those types of things that children need. Or you can do it um, through the government system, which is through the child support agency where you file for an assessment through the agency and, and then there's an assessed amount that has to be paid for support of, of the kids. So that that's an important thing when you're looking at separating, knowing what exactly you're entitled to and how you're going to manage. So. I do see a lot of clients who have been in very financially abusive relationships and it has really um, affected their ability to feel like they can separate and, and leave that relationship. And so we'll give them advice about how things might look moving forward and we'd also often refer them to people like yourself to get some financial advice as to how this is going to look when they're on their own and they don't have that regular money coming in often not that regular. So I've had clients that, you know, maybe given an allowance and it's not very much money. So that's the type of financial control we see. Yeah. Have you got an example? Like, I, I, going on the topic, because I, I, I'll be, um, with last week from this recording, we'll have um, had Amanda Kasser on. So it's a nice segue to actually get you on um, and continue the conversation of, of um, financial abuse. Have you got any examples so people can kind of go recognize in themselves or potentially other people because I think this is something that not many people are very aware of but it is so it's out there and it's so prevalent actually I, I mean I've seen it here in, as an advisor I'm sure you've seen it many times over as a um, you know when as a lawyer it's, it's, it's all over the place but it's not talked about and, and something that I think we should be shedding more light on. So if you don't mind, can you some share some examples? Yeah, I had, I had a client because I've been, um, we were discussing this earlier, but um, Landra and Rogers are very um, supportive of um, different pro bono initiatives. I was advising um, a mum who had a couple of really young kids, so they were, they were very young. Um, she hadn't worked for a long time and that was agreed with her former partner. He had um, encouraged her to stay home. Um, 
initially at all was fine. She was um, happy to do that. And she was also um, helping to raise his, his older two kids. So he had two older kids from a previous relationship. So she gave up a relatively highly paying position to stay at home to support his career, to help him raise his initially his older kids and then their two little kids. Um, but over time, her independence, her financial independence sort of eroded and eventually she was completely dependent on him financially. So, for example, she'd have to justify every expense that she she made. So if she bought a coffee, she'd have to explain why, where, who, with, when, this type of control over her everyday expenditure. Um, so initially she'd be paying for things on card, credit card, and he'd go through the statements and query at the end of every day exactly how she'd spent every cent out of the account. It then transitioned to a point where he would only give her a set amount of money each day that she could spend and she had to provide receipts to show how she'd spent that money. Um, and at the end of the relationship, she was given an allowance of about $10 a day. And that's all she had to spend. Everything else, he would control the expenses. So he would pay for the food, um, the, the water, the electricity, everything. She had no control over any of that. And she just couldn't handle it anymore, rightly so. It was just so um, controlling of her every minute. So she left the relationship um, and had these two little kids and um, he refused to pay anything. So she was living in um, a hostel for, for a while because she couldn't afford to live anywhere else. Um, and anyway, we provided her with some advice. We were able to help her through that process and eventually we were able to get her back into the home, which was important because she needed to be back in the home and him out of the house with paying the expenses so she could actually have some semblance of control over her situation. But what was important in that case was he ended up, um, we ended up getting him to pay a periodic amount to her. So in addition to paying all the expenses for the house, the outgoings um, and, and some of the kids' expenses, he also was paying her a periodic amount each week, which gave her a bit of control over how she was spending her money. And she knew how much she had she could budget rather than um, paying for everything on credit and then he could still keep control of what she was doing and where she was going. So I think that was important for her that she had that periodic amount coming in. But um, that, that's just an example, and it's probably an extreme example, but I think it's the type of case that we see a lot of. I think financial control is very prevalent. Um, I don't even know often whether the perpetrators of financial control are even aware of what they're doing in some of the cases that we see. Sometimes I don't think it's even intentional. It, it's under the guise of budget or trying to um, um, be financially responsible, but it has a flow-on effect, in my view, of, being controlling and um, and uh, the other thing we were talking about, um, Amy and I were talking earlier, was about um, how often clients don't even know the level of liability or debt that they're in during the relationship and it's as though they've got their head in their sand. It's just they honestly don't know. They trust their partner. He has control of the finances. They'll just sign that document and not even question what they're signing because they trust that you know, this is a family decision. And then when they leave the relationship, suddenly they're up to their neck in debt, often in their own name, and trying to get out of that and unwind all of that is very difficult. Um, so they're just some examples of the types of um, things that we see as family lawyers and trying to unwind that requires a bit of help from people like yourself. 
Yeah, look, I've come across that as well. As a financial advisor, um, I try and encourage both parties, you know, um, husband, wife, or, you know, partners to be in the meeting and to be involved. And I ask, you know, questions about how they feel about things and are they understanding and um, in the, when I set up the, you know, sort of, not a budget, I don't like to call it budget, the lifestyle plan and their banking system, I'm sure they have their own bank accounts, they have their own spending, that they've got that sense of autonomy, you know, over their finances. It's important that we have that. It's a part of being, you know, having that self-worth and, and knowing that we have that control. Um, and if, you know, that's, if I've come across anyone that has been in that situation, usually the older generations because, and, and when we're talking about, you know, a partner who's, um, you know, in your case, I'm thinking the husband may have not deliberately started out like this is to be mean or to be controlling and to be that tyrant, but they're being raised in a way that this is what they've mirrored from their parents. And that's something I've learned with the, the training I had with money coaching is we, we look at the past, we look at the childhood, we look at all these things because that all comes up when you're at, as an adult and we start behaving the way we were tra like taught. So, you know, abuse usually comes from other, you know, it's multi-generational. It's not just coming out of um, a new method of, of ma managing the money. No, that, that's entirely, I, I think that's right. And that's why I, I had to make that point that often this type of control is really not intentional. No, and that's something that Amanda brought up in our podcast. Is she said a lot of the time when, you know, it's that they've not realised when we've, when it's recognised that there's some kind of, you know, in a financial planning meeting, for example, where you start to see, oh, you know what, you're making all the decisions. How do you feel about that? Well, actually, I think we're quite uncomfortable about that. Okay. And then they've gone away and gone, oh, sorry, I didn't realise that that was how you felt. So having these open conversations early in the piece in a relationship about money is actually quite a healthy thing. And that's, look, that's why I wanted to do these podcasts was to bring the conversation of money to mind on a regular basis in all sorts of um, industries. And, and obviously when you're in the hot water you're, where you're finding, you know, people um, are often when they're needing that help, when they're coming out of a relationship, um, you know, it's sort of a bit too late. But at this point, it's now about educating, re-educating and helping people find their way out of that situation or finding the new path out of the relationship. Um, that sort of leads me to another question that I've been thinking of and the one that I've had with divorcees um, when they go, is this fair? What is, what is the best outcome for me? What, what can I get? Or um, especially when it comes to superannuation. How much would I be entitled to if I were to separate? What would that be? What does that look like? I mean, it is an open-ended question. Um, so it's, it's quite a loaded question. But have you got some ideas or examples or, or you know, ways of working things out for people that then creates a fair outcome? So we all have to follow um the legislative pathway in terms of how we approach property settlement. So what that means practically is um, there's currently a five-step process that as lawyers we need to follow when giving advice to our clients about likely range of entitlements. So what I should say from the outset is family law is incredibly discretionary area of law. 
So you can have 10 different judges, 10 different lawyers who all come to 10 different decisions or views in relation to what a person may or may not be entitled to in a family law property settlement. However, that's why we talk about range of entitlements because generally those 10 different judges or 10 different lawyers will come to a percentage that's within a range. So you might say 50 to 60% or 55 to 65% and generally they'll come to a percentage figure that's within that range um, based on different facts in different cases. So if I can just rewind back to the five steps, the first step is should there even be a settlement? Is it just inequitable that there be a settlement? And in some cases, if it's a very short relationship, um, there's no joint assets, it may not be just inequitable that there be any settlement. So the first hurdle you've got to get over is should there be any settlement? Most cases, generally, yes, there should be. And in most cases, most, most parties will jointly agree that yes, there does need to be some adjustment of the assets and liabilities, but just need to be mindful that in family law, that's the first step, whether there should be any adjustment at all. The second step, which I sort of alluded to a bit earlier, was what there is to divide, what is in the pool of assets that are available for division. And um, that includes all property, um, houses, cars, household contents, bank accounts, shares, um, superannuation, um, um, business interests, any trust interests, um, all of that is included, um, and as well as liabilities, so credit card, personal loans, mortgages, um, all of that goes into the pool of assets that are available for division. And that is what we call the first step is the full and frank disclosure where each party exchanges financial disclosure so we can work out what there is to divide whether there needs to be any valuations of assets to establish their value, that's the first step. Once we've got the balance sheet, we can say, well, now we know exactly what there is that has to be adjusted and what there has to be divided to um, end up with a property settlement. Once we've got that, we can then say what the third step is in a property um, settlement. The third step is looking at each party's contributions, both financial and non-financial, during the relationship. So we initially say, well, what, what did they each bring in? So what were their initial financial contributions? So maybe they both came in with nothing and maybe that one party came in with a lot and one party didn't have a lot. But we look at initially what they've both brought into the relationship. Then we look at the financial and non-financial contributions that they've each made throughout the relationship. And it's important when I say this to know that if one party's working and one party's at home, Non-financial contributions at home are equally as important as financial contributions outside of the house. So I don't like to say, oh, you're just, you're just at home. It's important to say that person's actually working in that role at home. They're a homemaker role and that is treated equally by the law. So we're looking at financial, non-financial contributions during the relationship. Then we look at financial and non-financial contributions post-separation. So what have these what have these respective parties done post-separation? Has one party continued paying the mortgage and meeting all the outgoings on the assets? The other has done work 
um, to to um, to the property in terms of um, you know, maintenance, um, renovations. Um, has one party been primarily caring for the kids, doing all the homemaker work? Um, we're looking at all of these different contributions. At the end of that process, we'll come up with a percentage figure and say, well, on the basis of um, the fact that you came into the relationship with nothing, you both worked equally financially and non-financially during the relationship since separation, you've done the same, you know, there might be, um, in our view, it's 50%. So you're both worth 50% or um, he brought in a house and that's added significantly to the asset pool, therefore he should be given some type of credit for bringing that in. Um, perhaps, you know, he gets 60% and you should get 40% in our, our opinion. Um, we come to a very discretionary view as to what the percentage um, on contributions is, looking at all those facts, which vary significantly from case to case. Come to a percentage in our view on contributions, we look at future needs factors. So things like, is he going to be earning half a million dollars a year and she's going to be at home looking after the kids and her, you know, her, her earning potential has been affected by all the years that she's been home with the kids? Or um, he's got an illness that means he can't work um, and she can work. Um, and therefore his, his earning capacity into the future is going to be affected by that health condition. Um, we look at all these different future needs factors and um, then we say, well, perhaps there should be on the basis of the earning disparity or the health condition, um, there should be a further adjustment in one or other party's favour. Um, and that means that whilst it might initially be 50-50 on contributions, one party might get more on the basis of their future needs. Once we've gone through that whole process, the final step is, is this outcome just and equitable? And that's generally looking at not only is the whole overview percentage just, but is the mix of assets um, just and equitable? For example, is one party keeping more of the super assets than the other party? Or is that, um, is that, and is that appropriate? And that might be appropriate in circumstances where we've got one party who's earning a lot more Perhaps they should be keeping more of the super assets because they can make up um, the non-super assets in a shorter amount of time than the other party who might not have that earning capacity. But that's what we look at look at in the final step. What exactly is just and equitable? Um, and that's the process that the court has to follow when making a determination about property settlement. And it's what we as lawyers have to apply when advising our clients about what we think their entitlements are in a property settlement. So it's almost like saying how long is a piece of string. I know that it's, it doesn't really help, but it helps to hear what the process is when we're, we're, we're um, giving that advice because I think what I say to clients generally in when I first speak to them in a property settlement matter is to say, can you come back to me with your instructions as to the history of your relationship? So look at what you've brought in, look at your contributions and give me a bit of a summary of that because that helps me giving them advice about what I, I might be entitled to. Well, that's actually a really good answer um, because there is so many factors to consider, but it, the process is, um, you know, well, well thought out. I mean, I, I've had spoken to two guys recently, um, both have put off um, the finals, like doing the settlement um, divorce process. So they're in new relationships and, 
their partners are frustrated because they've got this financial and emotional and you know this tie to the past relationship and the fear that's holding them back to move forward with that settlement is oh she's going to take all my super mm. and both guys have said that oh she's going to take my super i can't and it's like well and i've said similar because we've had this conversation before it's like well actually there's a lot to consider about that and there's a lot that they that the, the legal you know legal teams would actually look into before that is the case and and that's really your answer was great because you know a lot of people don't think oh they're just gonna you know take all this money you look at her, her future earnings you know and whether she can then you know the kids are older and be able to catch up and vice versa and all that kind of thing but i really like that answer i think that um it does sort of debunk some people's um theories because people don't think that most people do mm. I get that all the time, you know, you know, he's going to get half of this or she's going to take half my, you know, this. And it's not, unfortunately and fortunately, it's not as straightforward as that. Yeah, but it sounds like given there is so many factors that is considered and the fact that they are all considered before you come up with that final, uh, say, percentage or that bound, like, you know, a, a figure is um, that, there has been a massive consideration and that it, there is some fairness around that. And it isn't like she's just going to go for everything I own. When we hear that, I think maybe that's from movies in the US system, just sort of um, that may happen overseas, but it's good to know that there is actually a really transparent legal process here in Australia that actually are looking after everybody, um, you know, involved, as, inclusive and as important as the kids that they're, they're going to be looked after financially in both households. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that because at the end of the day, and something that consider, we've got to consider with the financial outcomes, if you do have kids, is that um, no one's going to be worse off in the, at the end of the settlement process for the children in that respect. Well, you hope not. You hope not. Have you seen any cases that have been unfair? <laughs> that's a that's a difficult question to answer okay <laughs> because I, I actually because I worked before I was a lawyer I worked for a long time in the court so um, I worked as an associate to a judge um, in the federal circuit court um, and the judges try very very hard to apply the law in a fair just and equitable way I think in my view, the unfairness flows from the cost of the proceedings, both emotionally and financially, particularly for that very small percentage of cases. And, and I say small percentage, I, I mean a very small percentage of cases that actually go all the way through the court system to a final hearing. Um, what I think is heartbreaking for litigants is at the end of the process when their legal fees outweigh their entitlement. And you think, what are you doing? And how did you get to this point? As lawyers, in my view, we have a very, very big obligation to our clients to give them advice along the way as to um, how the matter's proceeding. And, and often that's frank advice. Um, and I think that we have an obligation to keep their fees down as low as we can. That means um, going through alternate dispute resolution processes to try and mediate matters to try and resolve them to think outside the square often to come up with practical solutions but 
I think when you say to me, have you seen any unfair outcomes? I think the unfair outcomes, in my view, are the ones where the emotional and the financial toll are significant and outweigh the benefit. And I say this to my clients all the time, every day. There's no winner or loser in family law matters. Mm. It's mm. just, it's just, well, actually, there's no, there's, there's no, there's no winners really, because in my view, sometimes there are losers. Right. Particularly if the finance, when you, when you look at the financial and um, emotional toll that litigation can have. And regrettably, often the losers are the kids. Mm. because their parents are in conflict and that's never good for young kids so my view is stay out of the system get good advice and um and try and settle matters as quickly as you can yeah okay so that goes back to what we spoke about in the beginning of this um interview is the first thing is get as soon as you see the writing on the wall and the relationship's coming to an end seek that legal advice immediately and start the pro the mediation process to get to, to avoid that pro you know getting going through to court. Um, and what other professionals uh, do you work with in regards to this whole process? Mm -hmm. um, accountants often. Um, I work a lot with mediators, um, financial planners, um, sometimes tax lawyers. Um, because often settlements have um, quite significant tax implications for one or other party. Um, in parenting matters, I'll often work with um, therapists. Um, even in property matters, sometimes you can refer people to a, to um, family therapy to get some assistance with their their communication, particularly if they've got kids. Whilst the children might not be an issue, um, sometimes the financial matters can impact on the parents so significantly that it does have a flow-on effect for kids. So I work quite closely with a lot of therapists. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think they'd be the main types of people that I'd be working with. And often we work with them quite closely um, during the course of a matter. Right. Um, and what I'm just sort of randomly asking questions. My mind's going a million we could probably I could talk all day on this because... I find this hard. I've been through a divorce, but luckily for me and my ex-husband, we went, we, you know, let's just walk away with what we came in with sort of thing, which at the time really wasn't that much. Um, and it was, you keep your super, I keep mine. And we were focused on about the care of the kids and we've still, but to this day, that's one thing I'm glad about. Is, um, our relationship was never, uh, we sort of put all our disputes aside when it came to the kids. Um, and we're still like that. Kids come first. And it just helped us get through what could have been a very ugly situation in our life. But I've also got a lot of friends and, you know, um, clients. And as I said, I deal with a lot of divorcees, mostly women, um, that have come, come through this quite scathed. So I've been lucky to come unscathed. What, um, have you got an example of a really good, I know you said there's no win, um, and I respect that because as we don't enter into a marriage to be divorced, um, you don't build your life to buy property to then have it, you know, split or argued over. Um, but what is probably a good example of a positive outcome from a settlement point of view? Have you got any examples that you've actually seen or worked on? Worked on? Mm. 
Yeah, look, I think I should say when I say there are no winners, I mean in litigation. So when you're actually in the court process, um, a lot of our work involves helping clients settle matters outside of court. That's what we do. We try and resolve matters quickly outside of court with the assistance of mediators. Um, and in those cases, I think that, you know, most clients are generally relatively happy at the end of that process because, you know, they've got a pretty good settlement, you know, minimal legal fees um, and are able to get on with their lives generally with their emotions and their relationships relatively intact. So what I think the problem with court is is that it, it's very adversarial. So it puts, you know, party A against party B in a very um, confrontational, conflictual way. Um, you've got to swear affidavits that point out all like the problems with your other, your former partner and, um, you know, no one likes to, to read <laughs> negative things about themselves. Um, and so you end up hating each other just by virtue of the adversarial nature of the process. So I think looking at positive outcomes, sure, we definitely see people that um, think that the process has been quite positive, um, particularly when it's before court. So if you get out of something, settle it and get out early, I think that's generally when we see the positive um, cases. I I sometimes get clients that um, have separated, have gone to see a mediator before they they even see a lawyer, and and in some cases that may be appropriate. And then they come to me and say, look, we've reached this agreement. Can you help us draft some orders to reflect our agreement or can you help us draft um, a child support agreement or a binding financial agreement to set out the, the nature of the settlement. And we can, we can do that definitely. We will, of course, provide advice and say whether we think it's a good deal or not or whether we think it's within the range or not. And can I say, generally, when clients see very experienced mediators, the outcomes are within the range because the mediators are very familiar with the law that needs to be applied as well. So we'll help them with those, um, and and that can be quite a straightforward, uneventful process. I've, I've had clients that I've never even met face-to-face. I've just spoken to them over the phone where they've rung me up and said, look, I've reached this agreement. Can you help me with it? I get a bit of background. I get their instructions. I give them some advice, and then I help them with the documents, and they can be in and out relatively expeditiously, and then they leave thinking that actually wasn't too bad, and now I can just move on with my life. And my relationship generally with their, you know, their relationship with their former partner is generally relatively unscathed through the process. Can I say, though, those cases, um, um, I think they require a certain level of respect between the former partners that sometimes we don't see. And, and that's difficult when we've got cases where, and also often there's probably not any family violence in those types of cases. They're much more cooperative cases. But we can also, I guess, try and help people through a process even when there are problems like family violence or um, financial control. We can also guide them through that process, trying to avoid court as well, because I, I do think court is a trigger point for a lot of people and is... Um, almost like the path to to no end, really, um, or no good end, but sometimes it's necessary as well. So, um, yeah, I think for me the best outcomes are the ones that you can resolve relatively soon, quickly. So 
the message I'm I'm hearing more than anything and quite loud and clear from you is um, seek legal advice as soon as possible um, and it or find um, a great mediator. I, I would say probably get the, get on the phone if you you know to uh, you know someone like yourself first and maybe get referred to the right mediator. Yeah, they've got to be mediators that have experience in this particular area. I think I think you're right. I think having a good mediator can help. Mm. Um, so that is actually where the win win is when it can be kept out of court. Yeah, that it's a fair process and it's a quick. Um, process and it's not going to cost the world in legal fees. That's right. Um, because, I mean, as you said earlier, going to court, the sad situations are when the, you know, the cost is actually outweighs uh, what they get, the settlement, which is terrible. And then they hate each other forever. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, look, we, it's, it's a hard situation to go through. You also, you know, you mentioned there's counsellors and, and, and whatnot that are available for, for going through divorce. Divorce is a tough time emotionally as it is. Throw in the stress of finance. Stop throwing the stress of actually legal fees and, you know, um, fuel to the fire and throw you back into court. That's when, you know, it would be quite ugly. So, And it's important. It's important that, in my view, most people going through this need some of their own therapeutic support through it, even in a relatively cooperative post-separation relationship, it can be quite stressful, even if it's just someone that they touch in with every now and again, touch base with and get a bit of support. I think it's really important. And, and I know myself and all my colleagues often talk to clients about the importance of having that person, or be it a therapist or a family member or a trusted friend, someone you can actually you know rely on through this process to give some support because it, it's it's really stressful mm. I, I feel that with my clients I know they find this incredibly stressful and I think um, just it's important that they do have that support through the process um, and I think that's another thing I'd say you know if you are separating make sure you reach out for support because you're going to need it. Yeah, that's such good advice too. And that sort of self-care mm. um, is, you know, it's so important. And it's hard, especially when you are going through this kind of trauma. Um, I call it trauma because you don't realise it is until it's over. Mm. Um, and I'm speaking from my own experience, but when you've got young children, you, you're, you know, I know with mothers, they don't put, themselves first and it's really important that they take that advice you've just given mm. and actually look after themselves through this process because um, otherwise it just will take their toll on uh, so many other aspects of, of their life including their health where they're no good to anybody um, when when their their stress levels have actually affected their not just mental health but their physical health that's right that's really really important advice I really appreciate that you pointed that out um, you know, we've just been inundated all over the you know world with on the internet and social media. Are you okay? I guess that's something that you guys are constantly having to ask your mm. clients through these times. Mm. Um, just on a personal note, do you struggle? Do you find sometimes that heaviness and walk out of your just going, oh, that was just a, a really tough day? I do, I do. I find some days very tough. Um, I think. Um, We've got to remain um, 
professionally detached, of course, um, because you've got to be the objective voice as their lawyer. But you, you do develop really close relationships with your clients because often you speak to them very regularly. You know every intimate detail of their life. Um, and, um, you know, you do feel very, um, very sorry for what's going on in their lives and you want to try and support them. But I think what I know and what I've learned and what I've experienced is, is that I have to make sure it's very clear what my role is. And my role is not as their therapist, but as their lawyer. Um, I can't, I can't give them that therapeutic support that often they need. And, um, that's a struggle for me because you are in that very close relationship with someone, but you're also a professional, you're their advisor, and you've got to advise within the parameters of the law. Um, so, yeah, I do take it home with me some days. Um, I've, I've, I've learnt, I guess, throughout my career that um, you have to let those things go a bit Um so give you time to think about it. You might be worried about something and think, right, well, I'm going to think about this for 15 minutes. I'm going to give myself permission to, you know, ventilate this issue in my own mind for 15 minutes and then I'm going to move on and I'm not going to think about it again. Or um, I'm going to walk into the house and before I walk into the house to see my kids and my family, I'm going to give myself five minutes just to wash away everything that I've heard today and go in there with a positive frame of mind because I don't want you know, what I've experienced today to impact on my family because it's important that it doesn't. Um, unfortunately, with COVID-19 and working from home, that's a little bit more. It's been hard. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, I've been around for long enough to know that um, I think if you give yourself permission to have those worries and have those concerns for a set amount of time and then let it go, that's how I survive. <laughs> Right. And, you know, that's also really good advice. And I think um, us advisors uh, are very, you know, in a similar boat in some, time, in some respects. Um, I, I have a huge amount of empathy with my clients, especially my divorcee clients, um, as, you, you know, when they go through that emotional, because what happens after the divorce, after the settlement, is there's this bit of a void and then all of a sudden that gets filled up with um, a feeling of loss and um, sometimes they actually grieve and, you know, it's okay to do that. But uh, your advice about having that moment and just letting the day wash away before you go and see kids and everything, I think we all need to take a leave of your book there because that's really good advice because we do take on that, emo you know, the emotional impact that um, our clients are going through. It's, it's a human, you're human, um, you know, and it's important that you have that empathy, what you deal with, um, you know, you're you're sitting there with someone who's going through what was going to be the plan of life that's broken. Yeah, and they're grieving. They're grieving. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's um, even, um, I jokingly said before, you know, they'll end up hating each other. Um, I think hate is really, it's a very strong emotion. Um, and I think my, my old judge, who I think is incredibly wise, used to say, You've got to let go of that negative intimacy. You've got to get through that negative intimacy into a business-like arrangement. And when you can get to that business-like arrangement, then you can get on with your life. And I think that's really good advice. And that's what I talk to my clients a lot about. Um, 
because often when you see people that have just separated, um, they do hate their former partner. They genuinely have that strong hate. Um, and that is not a good emotion to carry in life. It's just not. And so if they can get through that negatively intimate reaction to their former partner and move towards a more cooperative business-like respectful relationship, it's going to be much better for both their emotional and their physical health in my view. So I think that's um, something to, and that and that's something that they can work through with a therapist. That's not my role, but no. it's an observation I make because I think it's good advice. Mm. Um, no, I'm I'm 100% with you on that, and it's something I tend to take on a lot of um, that emotional burden, and so I've got to step back and uh, remind myself that I can't carry their, that burden that I'm there to give them the guidance like you do and re refer on if I have to. Um, so a lot of us advisors go, well, we feel like we're the counsellor and we're the marriage counsellor and we're the, you know, not only the financial advisor and educator and whatnot, but there is a point in um, everyone's role is to go, there's someone else who's going to be better at that than me. Um, so, you know, you referring that off, you know, is something I've got to, practice but also not take it on and that's you've you know we're human but taking it on is is so easy to do when you emphasize with your clients so um i'm definitely taking that advice <laughs> going back to um you know we, we talked about the first thing i'm going to read can you know go back over what we've spoken about the first thing we you know you recommend is seek advice um and that be go see see a lawyer someone like yourself um, who specialises in this, and then they can refer you on to the right mediator. That's important, not just to go um, straight into mediation, because I know that people think, well, that's the way to go to avoid the legal cost, but that could be causing more problems if you're not getting the right mediation. And it could be that the outcome's not just, mm -hmm. or, or it's not ready, or it's not ready. Because some matters might be ready to go straight to a mediation, but other matters may not be because the financial disclosure process hasn't been followed. Some cases don't need to follow that financial disclosure process as strictly as others, but it's important that you, know, that, that you do get advice so you know where you're going and where you're heading rather than taking steps too quickly and then you take the steps again and that adds to the cost because private mediators cost. Yes, yeah, so all of this is going to be in some way an expense, but it's by the first step, getting getting that legal counsel from someone like yourself is actually going to be the most um, cost-effective process to the beginning of the you know what you need to go through because you're going to give guidance to, and first of all, listening into the actual circumstance and then guide them based on the information they give you. Um, and then the other part of this um, is, to, you know, obviously avoid the, um, going down the road of, of getting into court. So trying to get that all done and work with each other um, as amicably as possible. So let go of the anger and just try and deal with it as a business transaction. I think that's great advice, being practical. Um, there is going to be a reality of grief and sadness. And often after anger and hatred comes sadness, you know, those steps of grief. Um, and, but, and that's okay. And we've all got to be forgiving of it, you know, ourselves for those kind of things. Um, 
So I would, I, 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 I want to, um, I think perhaps we could create a bit of a fact sheet of what to, you know, um, things to consider and just so that when they are, people are getting advice, you know, for example, we go back to how you calculate um, someone's, uh, you know, division of their superannuation with all these considerations. Um, I'd love to put that in sort of a bit of a fact sheet so people actually are armed with some knowledge of going, oh, they're not just going to take all of my super, they're not going to take the house. There's so many misconceptions around um, divorce and settlement and, you know, and how assets are divided. You know um, what might help? We, um, our firm put up um, articles about different areas of law, like summaries of different areas of law on our website and also on our LinkedIn page. Um, maybe that might be of assistance. Some of those might help as well. I think probably some in there that look at property settlements, um, spouse maintenance, those types of um, issues. That might be a place to start. Yeah. And before we go, I just want to go back to the pro bono work you're doing um, with, with um, you know, the financial use and the refugee. Um, can you just uh, give people a few, I mean, we did talk about this with Amanda, but I would like you to sort of also shed some light on some things that people could look out for um, as what could be financial abuse if they're feeling like they're in a bad situation, because often people are already in hot water when they realise it's almost too late. Um, uh, so if you can give us some ideas or insights or even example, I know we've talked a bit about it. And also just let us know where um, people can seek help for that mm -hmm. if they are feeling that they are in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think um, things like um, not being able to freely spend money is the key. So mm -hmm. I get that even in healthy relationships, there's a bit of oversight as to expenditure. You know, um, I mean, I can spend whatever I want, really. But, um, you know, if I'm going to spend a, a, something big, I would obviously talk to my partner about that. Um, but if you've got to talk and if you if you are spending money and every expense is being scrutinised in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, then that may be financial control. Um, if you feel like you've got no insight into where money is or how it's being spent or you've got no control over money, that also may be an element of financial control. Um, in terms of who you can see to get support for that, I think financial control, and, and I think people don't realise this, but financial control is actually a form of family violence. Um, and that controlling coercive behaviour is family violence, is defined as family violence under the Family Law Act. And therefore, if you feel like you're being controlled in a way that doesn't make you feel comfortable or doesn't make you feel like you're being an equal partner treated respectfully, then my advice would be to firstly go and see a therapist or someone who has specialty in this type of, of area. Um, you can ring, There's a number that you can ring. Um, and the counsellors on that in that call centre can can help, and they can also guide you and refer clients to different areas um, that can help them. So I think, firstly, getting therapeutic support to manage that is important. Um, if you're looking at um, wanting to separate, then again, I would say go and see a family lawyer with experience in this area. If if you don't have money to engage a lawyer, a private lawyer. 
Um, Legal Aid New South Wales have a domestic violence unit specialising in family law. You can um, make an appointment to speak to one of those lawyers initially, or you could go and make an appointment to speak to one of the lawyers at the Financial Abuse Clinic at Redfern Legal Centre. That's a statewide service. So, um, and it's all being done by telephone at the moment. So you ring up and you get an appointment and say what they'll, they'll do an initial intake. Um, and then you can speak with a lawyer, um, as to, um, you know, what advice they might think is appropriate. But I think firstly, you've just got to identify that if you are in a situation that makes you feel uncomfortable and you're not, um, feeling supported or you're concerned that you don't have very much freedom, um, particularly in relation to financial freedom or any other freedom really, then you should be um, getting some support with that. Um, and that I think is, is really important. That's the first step. Mm. And having the courage to ask for that help. That's right. Yeah. And I guess anyone who's listening who, who recognises maybe a family friend, family or friend of theirs uh, potentially in that situation but um, don't know how to approach it yeah it's awkward isn't it i had um i had a friend once whose neighbor um she felt might have been in that situation um this was several years ago um when i was still working as an associate and she didn't know what to do and in the end um i got her some pamphlets from the court because we um had at the court where where i worked there was a family violence unit at the court and they had lots of pamphlets about different support services that were available and she ended up um, giving those to the, the friend um, and said, look, I think maybe have a read of these. And a few months later, the friend approached her and, and said that she had actually done that and she finally reached out to one of the support services and um, she'd actually, the relationship had broken up. So she's quite thankful for that. And that, but I actually think that's quite brave on two fronts. It's brave on the person giving the information because it might be met with, um, quite a negative reaction and it's brave on you know the, the lady that left that relationship because it's very hard to do that to make that decision yeah absolutely especially if you've got children involved mm, that's right it's not easy it's not no cool. so i would just say to anyone who's listening today that um that it is if you are in that situation um taking that first step is hugely difficult and um you have to do it when you're ready and you feel comfortable and don't feel pressured to do anything that you don't think that you're ready for. You have to make that decision yourself. Mm, that's great advice. Well, you've been full of it, full of amazing advice today. Thank you. Um, so many great nuggets that we can take away. And I think we've also debunked some, um, you know, myths about how divorce settlement is calculated and, and the outcomes because we do have a very fair justice system here. Um, and there are, you know, people like yourself that actually want to help come out with the best outcome for people and um, ensure that they're not actually spending ridiculous amounts of money um, and ending up dragging their feet through court, which is something you, you actually want to avoid. I, I really appreciate everything that you've shared today. And um, what we'll have to do is get some links on um, the Sensibility website to um, your firm and some information and fact sheets and um, and also obviously if you you know want to reach out to Sky or her colleagues that they can go through either my website which will have in resources um, or it's uh, Landon Rogers in Sydney yeah it is yep 
Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Sky. No worries. Thank you.